I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of I-94 right here on Lumpen Radio. As always, my name is Mr. Jamie Trecker, and as always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hello. Today, we are very thrilled to have the author David Heska Wanbley Wyden. He is a member of the Sichangu Lakota Nation, and he's got a new book that was actually just released, I think, this week, right, Mike? Last week. We could wow, go today. last week, and it's getting a lot of press. It's called Winter Counts. He joins us through the miracle of technology. Dave, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So Winter Counts is a new book, and it's a it's a piece of genre fiction. I kind of like to start there, actually, because uh, as regular listeners of the program know, uh, members of my family actually write mysteries and, and detective novels, and uh, I write detective short fiction as well. Uh, I wanted to start out and ask kind of what was attractive uh, about this genre to tell this story, which is heavily grounded, I think, in your own background in the Lakota Nation and takes place in, in that nation and, and discusses a lot of things that are going on in the indigenous community here in the United States. Yeah, so the, the, the back story on this is in my day job, I'm a professor of Native American studies in uh, Denver. And so I've been aware of the political trends and political, you know, the laws and legal developments for, for many years. And, you know, I'm sure it's not a surprise to anybody listening to this that there are a lot of laws of the U.S. government that have severely disadvantaged American Indian people. So I started writing fiction about 12 years ago, and I did my MFA at the Institute of American Indian Arts, where I studied with a lot of really superstar, wonderful indigenous writers. And because of my knowledge of the criminal justice system on reservations and the way that it's really just a broken system, there's no other way to describe it, I thought that crime was the natural fit. Plus, I love crime fiction. It's It's been my favorite genre you know, for years. So so crime novel really was the way to tell this story, to expose the flaws in the criminal justice system on reservations. Well, before we kick into the, the plot and the actual book, Dave, will you tell us, so in the book, it, it talks a lot about felony convictions on uh, Native American soil and how the federal government doesn't prosecute um, except unless it's a big name crime or a you know a, you know uh, what we call in Chicago you know like a an expensive zip code murder or something like that you know um, a very Chicago term and then <laughs> why you know why um, Virgil Wounded Horse has his job his uh, enforcer job can you go into a little bit because I was unaware of that I know that I knew there were tribal laws and I knew there was police but I didn't know how that all worked and it was very informative. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. No, I'll, I'm delighted to give sort of the setup to the book. It's a law of the U.S. Congress called the Major Crimes Act. So the Major Crimes Act passed in 1885 is a law that says Native American nations on their own territory, their own lands, sovereign independent lands, may not prosecute violent felony crimes. So if they catch a criminal say, abusing a little girl or raping a woman or committing a murder, they can apprehend the offender. They must then contact the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office and hand the offender over to them. Now, all of that is well and good, except for the fact that the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office are declining to prosecute anywhere from one-third to one-half of all of these cases. So what happens is these offenders are simply released back out into the wild to go out and commit more crimes. 
So this has contributed to a real atmosphere of lawlessness on some reservations, and it's it's outrageous. I did publish an essay, a, a scholarly essay on this, July nineteenth, in the New York Times, where I ex explore this, you know, in a non-fictional sense. Um, now, what that means for the book is there has sprang up a uh, a class of professional enforcers. So if somebody's hurt your little kid or your sister, or your mother and the feds are just letting the guy go free, you want some justice. And there are people on reservations who will go out and beat the crap out of folks for a, for a price. They are professional enforcers, professional vigilantes, if you will, and that is the hero of my book, Virgil Wounded Horse. But it's all because of this really outrageous law passed in 1885, and I just want to get in there before I forget to mention this, that any attention that I get from this book um, I am using, I've been in contact with a native legal organization, and I, we are starting an effort to try to get the Major Crimes Act of the U.S. Congress uh, amended, if, if not terminated altogether. So I'm hoping that this book will have a positive effect in real life. That's great. So let me, let's just back up here for a second, because I, I think this is really fascinating. The, the world you're talking about here, and, and I don't think any of us, you know, really were aware of, of this, um, seems to be very much like the Old West, you know, uh, lawless with, you know, locally hired sheriffs, in a sense, if you will, to do jobs that the federal government is is apparently unwilling to do. What was the reason, first of all, that this law came in? And, and second of all, I, I would think it's got to be deeply worrying for um, members of, of these indigenous communities that they have to resort basically to hired thugs. I mean, it's very romantic from, from my point of view to have, you know, uh, you know, Sam Spade, you know, Phil Marlowe walking around, you know, you know, doing right. But I think in, in actual practice, uh, this has to be a pretty, uh, scary thing. Uh, you know, because this is, as you, you know, vigilante justice. Yeah, let me let me answer both of those. I'll I'll give the short version as to why this law was passed. So the law was passed in the late 1800s because of the murder, interestingly enough, of one of the great leaders of my nation, Chief Spotted Tail. Now, again, intriguingly enough, he is my great 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 uncle by marriage. I'm not related to him by blood, but I am related to him by marriage. So he was the great leader of my nation. Uh, we're officially known as the Rosebud Sioux Tribe. In our language, we're called the Sichangu Lakota Oyate, Sichangu Lakota people. And Spotted Tail was the great leader of our nation. A quick side note, I did just publish a children's book about him uh, last year in 2019. So Spotted Tail was our great leader. He was murdered uh, by one of his own people, uh, Crow Dog. And um, so... Back then, Native people could prosecute their own crimes. Now, our way of justice involves more reparations and trying to make the situation whole, trying to make the victim or the victim's family whole. So the, the elders of the nation said, okay, we're going to banish Crow Dog, and he has to support the family of Spotted Tail and, and pay some money and, and give a horse. And everybody was fine with this arrangement, except for the Americans, who hated it, because Western colonial justice is obviously more about retribution and sanctions, and they, they stepped in. They said, oh, heck no, and they arrested Spotted, uh, a crow dog for the murder of Spotted Tail and, and tried him and sentenced him to death. Well, he has an attorney, uh, a, a white attorney, who takes the case to the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court rules in favor 
of the Lakota people and says, look, this is an independent nation. They've got the right to prosecute their crimes as they see fit. Okay, and so the, the problem is the Congress was outraged by this, the U.S. Congress, and said this is outrageous, and they immediately passed the Major Crimes Act, which took away the right of Native nations to ever again prosecute most felonies that occur on Native lands. So all that long story, by this one random murder, it set off a chain of events that resulted in the passing of this law. Now to come to your second part of your question, it is outrageous. Uh, Native people, um, we have exceptionally high crime rates. People, you know, not just from the reservation, but people in surrounding communities will come and commit crimes uh, on Native lands. I, In my New York Times essay, I note that it's a virtual open season on Native women to be raped because they know that they're unlikely to be caught. And if they are, it's likely that the case will be tossed out. So it is a terrible thing. And it's it's a real thing. It's not fiction. So thus the rise of the professional vigilante. Were you? Did you do up close and personal research for it? For did you did you talk to people who had this role on reservations? No, I have never spoken to a vigilante myself. But I I, I spoke to people that know them. Um, I I did travel back to my reservation and sort of got the general picture. But I do have to be honest. I didn't. Uh, this is something that is done very much in the shadows. Okay. Yeah. So I did, yeah, I did not speak to a professional enforcer myself, but I got enough information that I felt I could create a, a, a realistic picture. Now, obviously I've dramatized it in, in the book. Virgil wounded horse is troubled by the moral and ethical implications of what he's doing. And so he, he, he really struggles with that. And also with his Lakota identity, he's what's known as an Ayeska, which is a slur for half breed. And so that's part of the book as well. But I, I will stop there. I wanted to ask, so are these vigilantes, does everybody know? Or is it like, do you got to go to a guy to figure out who it is? Or how, you know, it, I, I, the thing I'm thinking of is like the mafia, like if you need somebody whacked or something. And I know that's Hollywood and it's a bit of a, you know, exaggeration of, of what goes on on the reservations. But is that how it works? I'm just curious. I can only speak for my own nation. I, I, you know, there are almost 600 native nations in America. A lot of people don't know this. I can only speak for my own. We are very much like a, a big, small town. You know, we have only a few thousand or maybe 10,000 people living on our reservation. Pretty much everybody knows each other. Everybody knows everybody else's business. So pretty much everybody knows who's, who's willing to do these sorts of jobs and tasks, if you will. Um, and if you didn't know, you would just have to maybe put out a, a, a few calls and and you would you would find the person. But it may very well operate differently on the Diné Reservation, the Navajos, which is massive. So I can only speak to my own. Great. We should probably get into the book and, and we're going to hear some readings actually from from Dave's book in a second. But, you know, it, when I was reading the book, it's, it's a quick read, uh, which is a good thing. You know what I mean? I, I enjoy uh, fast moving plots. You know, one of the, the people that the book reminded me a little bit because of, I think, the centering of the family as a place for drama and the kind of betrayals uh, w- without giving away a key plot point that, that occur in the book. It reminded me a lot of the fiction of Ross MacDonald, and I kind of wondered what the uh, what influences you took from the crime fiction genre to, to get into this, because this is your debut uh, as well as a fiction writer. It, it is. It is. I have a scholarly book out 
in my role as a professor and a, and a children's book out. But this is really my fictional debut. So my influences, I, I should note that I have an essay on indigenous crime fiction coming out in Crime Reads in a couple of weeks. Oh, nice. uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm really most influenced by the native crime writers that have gone before me. The most important one, in my view, was he's passed on now, the great native crime writer Lewis Owens, mm -hmm. who was writing his great stuff in the 90s. And, and I feel that he really pioneered sort of a unique style of American Indian crime fiction. And then my friend Stephen Graham Jones, who's just killing it right now with his oh, wonderful... I love Stephen. Yeah, he's a great yeah. one. Yeah, yeah he's, he's killing it right now with his indigenous horror book. But he wrote a book in the early 2000s called All the Beautiful Sinners, which I have argued in other arenas is also a really seminal work in indigenous crime fiction. And sort of my, my point here is indigenous crime fiction is different than a lot of crime fiction. Both It can be both different stylistically and also in our content, because a lot of folks don't know, like like you guys, I mean, why would you know about what goes on a reservation if you're, if you're not there? And a lot of folks don't know about the Major Crimes Act, but there's a lot that folks don't know about. For example, people don't know that American Indian spirituality was criminalized until 1978. Wow. It was actually a felony crime for us to participate in our own religious traditions until the year 1978. Now, when I tell this to my students, they are stunned because they're like, well, what about the First Amendment? And I'm like, yep, <laughs> now you get it. Uh, a lot of the Constitution doesn't apply to us. And so I think that native crime fiction is, it can be a call to arms. It can have both an educational function. But look, if you're not writing a book that's a page turner, nobody's going to pick it up. So again, I, I, I'm influenced by Lewis Owens. I'm influenced by Stephen Graham Jones. And I'm influenced by a lot of the great native writers as well. Louise Erdrich is wonderful. And of course, I just love crime fiction in general. I did build in a tribute to a non-native crime writer in the pages of Winter Counts. There is a hidden homage to uh, one of the more famous crime writers, because I love all that. I, I mean, James Elroy is pretty much my hero when it comes to dialogue and, uh, you know, just, just the greats, Chandler. So, I mean, you know, we, we take a little bit from everywhere, and so I'm just so honored to see the book in print. Are you going to tell us who the homage is to, or do we have to figure it out? You got to figure it out. Okay. okay. On that note, let's take a minute and actually uh, listen to a piece from Dave's book. Winter Counts is out right now. It's from Echo. And as always, we want to thank Shanna Van Volt. She's the fourth member of I-94. She's our reader. Today's music is provided by Jamie Branch, the Grammy-nominated and Grammy-winning trumpeter on International Anthem with her band Antiloper. One thing I do want to note is that we do not censor things here on I-94. We don't believe in that. The FCC, however, makes us change some words uh, in Dave's book. So if you want to get the full story uh, with some of those words we had to bleep, pick up the book yourself. We'll be back just after this little break with more from I-94. Nathan, I know you're sick, but I got to know something. So what happened? He looked puzzled. Uh, I guess I overdosed. No, I mean, why did you take that stuff? The drugs? He sat up and focused his attention on the IV line in his arm as if the answer to my question was there. I, I guess I screwed up. Come on, you can tell me. The truth, okay? Have you done this stuff before? No, this was the first time, I promise. He looked away and stared at the wall. All right, so why'd you do it? Well, school has sucked so bad this year. Sucked? What's going on? 
Now he turned to me with a resentful expression. You don't know what it's like there. Most of the kids are freaking mean and they make fun of me sometimes. You know, because my mom is dead or I'm not Indian enough or whatever. I barely have any friends. I've just been like really stressed out, feeling like crap all the time. Yeah, I did know what it was like at school and I remembered pretty well what it was like to be harassed and bullied. But my heart cracked when I realized he'd been going through it too. Alone. Why didn't you come talk to me? You know, let me help out. A pause. Uh, you're not exactly a person people talk to, like have a heart to heart or whatever. I mean, I need someone's ass kicked, you're the guy. This hurt. You don't want to talk to me, that's cool, I said. But you got issues, you can go to a school counselor or someone. He smirked, looked at me like I was the stupidest person alive. Yeah, okay. I decided to try a different tack. Don't you hang out with Jimmy? Talk to him? He's your bud, right? Uh, not so much anymore. He's like, starting to get all sporty, playing b-ball, hanging with those dudes. I'm more into rap, hip-hop, cool stuff. I knew when I'd hit a dead end. All right, but you gotta tell me one thing. I looked him in the eyes. Where'd you get the drugs? He paused. At school, by the football field. What do you mean the football field? From who? I don't know, some dudes hanging out there. Rick Crow? No, some other guys, like four of them. I seen him once or twice before. I don't know their names. We were talking about music and stuff, you know, chilling. So they said I could try it. Didn't ask me for no money. Said it was no big deal, like smoking a joint or whatever. I guess I just wanted to do something different. I didn't think none of this was going to happen. I wondered if he was lying to me. There was no way that drugs were being given away and I knew he didn't have money to buy them. There was more to this story. You being straight with me, whole thing sounds shady. Now he was staring at me like I'd been the one who caused him to overdose. I'm telling you the truth. You know, I got the right to make friends, live my life. I made a mistake, all right? I'm just trying to find out who these guys are, okay? You sure it wasn't Rick Crow? He relaxed a little. I'm positive. That dude's creepy. It was these other guys. They're not from around here. Can't remember their names. Only thing I remember is the main one was called Loco. Short guy, had a scar on his face. Loco. Sounded about right. And we're back. That was a selection, of course, from Winter Counts that is out from David Hescott Wanbley Wyden's new book released on Echo. And we just heard a little passage about uh, one of the seminal moments in the book, which is when uh, Virgil's uh, charge, so to speak, Nathan uh, overdoses and is in a hospital. Um, can you talk a little bit about the relationship that you built up between these two characters? Because again, I don't want to go too deep into spoiler territory, uh, but this is a, a critical crux of, of the book, that the relationship between these two people, Nathan, a younger man who is um, struggling at school and uh, struggling uh, really to find his place in the world. And Virgil, who you've already mentioned, is struggling with his own heritage and his, his identity. Well, and his mother being killed. And his mother being yeah. killed, of course, yes. Oh, is that a spoiler? I don't, I don't know if that's a spoiler. <laughs> It's not really a spoiler. No, I'm, I'm delighted to talk about that. So, you know, there hopefully there are a lot of layers in this book. There's the crime element. There's the political element. But there's also a, a family story and a story of identity. So Virgil Wounded Horse, uh, his sister, 
uh, yeah, was killed in a car accident, and he becomes the guardian of his nephew uh, Nathan, who's who's fourteen. Now that that illustrates a, another principle that a lot of folks don't know: the native conception of family is somewhat different than the traditional Western nuclear family idea. So in in native culture, everyone is considered family in in the extended family. And so, you know, aunties, uncles, grandparents. And so uh, Virgil steps right in and takes care of Nathan and becomes his uh, guardian because there's no one else to do it. Nathan is 14 and a somewhat troubled young man. Um, I did uh, tap into my own experience. I am a father. I've got two boys. They're, They're 15 and 13. When I was writing this, they were two years younger. And those were the hardest chapters for me to write, really, because as a, as a dad, you know, imagining if something bad happened to your kid, um, you know, now I did tap into some, some things that don't come in the book, but the emotions came in the book. I, I've mentioned this in other interviews, and I have a piece of writing on it, uh, so I, 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 I don't mind sharing it. It's a little bit of a downer. Uh, my, my 13-year-old son was inside a school when there was a school shooting just a year and a half ago. So my boys go to a school out here in Colorado called STEM School Highlands Ranch. And I did receive a call uh, just a, a couple of years ago while I was teaching from my ex-wife screaming into the phone saying, there's been a shooting at Sasha's school. That's my son. You need to get down here. And, you know, driving for an hour to get to my son's school, couldn't reach him on the phone. That, that, that's an experience that sears itself in your memory when you're a father. Now, I'm happy to report that he made it okay. He was uh, just two classrooms down from where the the killers came in. They came in and um, uh, uh, some boys in the classroom rushed one of the shooters and was able to disarm him. But one of them, unfortunately, a young man, a hero, really a hero named Kendrick Castillo, he took a bullet in the chest and he died on the on the spot. And so I, I feel that I owe a lot to Kendrick Castillo for disarming uh, uh, these these shooters so, you know, it's, it's an unfortunate fact of life in, in society today that these sorts of things happen. And as a writer, I had to, to tap into those feelings that I experienced, those feelings of, of panic, of feeling out of control, of not knowing what was going to happen. So I hoped that, you know, I could trans, you know, transmute, if you will, some of those terrible experiences into art a little bit, because Nathan does get into some pretty bad trouble in the book. I wanted to ask you a question where we're discussing uh, Native families. And I, uh, coincidentally, I'm a librarian, and we had read uh, Ceremony by Silco on, uh, from my book club. And Tayo, the protagonist of that novel, is also uh, mixed. He's, he's white and Native American. I know that other, just based on from my readings of both books, that uh, half-breeds, as they're called in the novel, discriminated against by other uh, Native Americans, but is it like that in the family too? Are they looked down upon or does it just depend on the family or is, or do they fit into that dynamic of family that you were talking about earlier? Well, again, I don't want to generalize too much. Because, I know, I know. And I, I know when I'm, I'm, I guess when I'm asked these kind of questions, I'm saying in your experience. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. In, in, in my experience, I don't think there's really discrimination at, at the family level. Um, you know, obviously, native in, in at least in my culture, Lakota culture, children are considered sacred. Um, we even have a word in the Lakota language to describe children that means, in a sense, sacred. Um, and and so, I don't think there's any discrimination in in my experience. Now, at the larger community level, it is it is problematic, because interestingly enough, in in the past, 
sometimes the Ayescas, which is a word we use for half-breeds, would, would get positions of power in the tribe because they could speak English, and so they often were able to ascend, and, and the full-bloods were discriminated against. Now, that has kind of changed over the years, and now the Ayescas are getting some more discrimination. So it, it's just a complicated issue all the way around, and, sure. and in the book, Virgil struggles with that. I and I do want to make it clear. I'm not trying to generalize anything about indigenous communities, as you stated. There's 600 in America, and I I'm just moving forward. It's just from your your experience. I want you and the listeners to know that that I am not trying to generalize anything. So, you oh know, sure, sure, of course. There's a uh, for for general readers who are interested in in, in an introduction to the history of of. Uh, Native American history. There's a there's a great book by Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz called "The Indigenous People's History of the United States." That's got a that's a that's a good kickoff, and it has a recommended reading list. So for people out there who like making lists and, and book recs, that's uh, that's one. I don't know if you wanted to name any, Dave. I do, as a matter of fact. Uh, that book is is great. It's it's there are two versions of it. There's the adult version, which honestly is is fairly dense. I've tried using it in my college courses, and it was just a little too dense for my students. There is a, a, a version now that is aimed uh, for YA, for, for young readers, and I think that's a, somewhat more accessible. Uh, I recommend both of those books highly, but the one that I really want to note is by my friend David Troyer. He was just nominated for the National Book Award last year in nonfiction for The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee. Yes, that was a, there was yeah, a great lot book. of great criticism it, about that book. Superb. It is absolutely superb because... It is a work of popular history. He talks about the history of American Indians, but I think in an accessible way, instead of this kind of dry, scholarly way, he comments upon the history, and he doesn't mind calling out BS when he sees it. And so, honestly, that should be your first book. If, if some of the stuff we're talking about today interests you, pick that book up. I promise you're going to like it. You know, you were talking about images being seared onto your brain from experiences with your son, it, and there were... There were a couple of those scenes in in your book. Um, the cattle prod to the eye was. Totally <laughs> yeah. Well, also the the. I forget the the specific context, but I think it's Virgil who's who's searching for somebody, a, a woman and her child, and uh, she's an alcoholic, and she uh, she she had neglected her son, and and he finds him frozen to death in the back of a car with his eyes open and it, that was there are some incredibly incredibly sad scenes in you know what else was sad too is when Virgil's birth was discussed it was like a cardboard city near a culvert is that the I don't know oh I must be getting sorry I'm you getting mixed up, up with ceremony sorry, sorry, sorry. that's okay <laughs> that's okay um but and and then there there's the uh there's the flashback to wounded knee which um, I don't know if you want to give a brief description of for readers who might not be aware. I would be surprised if many readers weren't aware or listeners weren't aware. Oh, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Oh, really? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. No. Okay, well, let's uh, let's start there, Dave. Sure, sure. Well, let me let me talk about the first one. I, I have a, a flashback in the book. Uh, Virgil in the book is a former alcoholic, but he doesn't drink. He never takes a drink in the book. So I did have one reviewer say Virgil's an alcoholic. I made a very conscious choice that I was not going to play into the stereotypes. So Virgil is not a drinker, but he's tempted in a bar one time, but he has oh, yeah. a flashback. Yeah. He has a flashback yeah. of when he had to go rescue a, uh, a child, uh, and, and he goes into this person's house, and it's uh, she's not native, she's Caucasian, but she's dead drunk, 
it gets cold up in South Dakota in the winter, like 20, 30 below. And, and he's just hit by the stench of, of, of uh, empty beer bottles and, you know, vodka. And, and that, and so that he gets that memory. And that is the first scene that you're talking about. He does discover a child that's frozen to death that actually happened out here in Colorado. Mm. But I melded that with a, a woman a couple of years ago died and froze to death on my reservation because she couldn't afford her propane bill. So we, mm. we have this really antiquated system of housing on many reservations that, you know, we don't have natural gas piped into most houses. Uh, you have to get a propane uh, uh, truck to come in and make the delivery. But if you can't pay, they don't deliver. My own auntie, who just made her journey a year and a half ago to the spirit world, she just had a firewood stove. 90-year-old woman had to go out and collect, you know, firewood to keep warm in the winter. And so um, I, I kind of the, the freezing to death and the and the, the you know I, I melded those together two different incidents about wounded knee. So wounded knee is on the Pine Ridge Reservation uh, next to the Rosebud Reservation. So we're both in South Dakota. Uh, we're kind of like cousins. So the Pine Ridge folks are known by the, in their Lakota as the Oglala Lakota people. And there's a famous battle site there. Really not battle, a massacre site. Um, and we kind of say that the end of Indian independence ended at Wounded Knee because there are about 200 primarily old men, women and children, and the, the U.S. Army just murdered them in this terrible, terrible massacre. Um, and, and so that obviously plays a, a role in the end of the book. And, and Wounded Knee thus has achieved really iconic significance for American Indians and, you know, some 40, 50 years ago, American Indian movement um, occupied the church there, which is now burned down as a protest. So Wounded Knee has a lot of meaning for uh, natives. And so I did bring it into the book. So we're going to take a pause there because we do need to remind people of, uh, you know, the folks that help make this station possible. We're talking today with the author, David Hesco wandley wyden He's the author of the new book, Winter Counts. It's out from Echo Press. When we return after our break, we're going to hear another selection from Dave's book, and then we're going to continue our conversation with him. Dave, you're not going anywhere, right? Absolutely. Okay, so guys, we'll be right back after this. Remember, you're listening to I-94 right here on WLPN. And now, back to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. After the meeting with the lawyer, I needed to unwind for a few minutes, so I headed for the Black Hills, known in Lakota as Hisapa. As usual, the roads were crawling with tourists speeding to see Mount Rushmore, or, for those who consider themselves to be more progressive, the Crazy Horse Memorial. Few of these people knew they were traveling on sacred grounds, lands that had been promised by treaty to the Lakota people forever, but were stolen after gold was discovered in the 1860s. Adding insult to injury, Mount Rushmore had been carved out of the holy mountain previously known as Six Grandfathers as a giant screw you to the Lakotas, kind of like Indians building a casino in the Church of the Resurrection in Jerusalem. Even the Supreme Court agreed that the Black Hills had been illegally seized and the Lakota Nation won a big lawsuit against the government in 1980 with hundreds of millions of dollars awarded in damages. But the leaders of the Lakota Nation refused to accept the settlement, stating that they wanted the land back, not the money. The government wouldn't hand over the hills and the Lakotas wouldn't take the blood money, so the settlement sits in a bank account earning interest, over $1 billion. If the seven Lakota nations were to accept the money and divide it equally among the people, every man, woman, and child would get about $25,000 each. 
For a family of four, a hundred grand could ease a lot of financial suffering. But aside from a few complainers, there hadn't been any real pressure from the Lakota people to accept the money. I admit, I daydreamed about what $50,000 could do for Nathan and myself. A decent place to live, good food, a chance at college for Nathan. As I drove through the hills, I felt guilty for thinking about the money again, but resolved to wise up. What did I care about some rocks and valleys? I took the back roads to stay away from the tourists, driving past one of the longtime tourist traps, the Cosmos Mystery House. I'd loved that place when I was a kid, and even Nathan had a good time when I took him there. It was a wooden cabin built on the side of a mountain at a crazy angle, so it seemed like the law of gravity was suspended. Water appeared to run uphill, people looked like they were standing at 45 degree angle, and trees seemed to curve in strange ways. The tour guides told a hokey story that powerful magnetic fields created a gravitation vortex, but the whole house was a giant optical illusion. The best part was the Cosmos Truth Chair, a wooden seat that seemed to be suspended in midair by only its back legs. The tour guide said that anyone sitting in the chair who told a lie would cause it to fall down. A few tourists sat in the chair and appeared extremely nervous as the tour guide asked corny questions like, have you ever run a red light? Or, have you ever cheated on a test? I wondered what questions someone would ask me if I was in the truth chair. Maybe, did you ever stop loving Marie? Or, do you think you'll ever forgive yourself for the things that you've done? After a while, I pulled off the road and found a quiet spot away from all the people. I listened to the wind and the birds and the sound of some water off in the distance and looked at the mountain across from me, rising up into the sky. It was crazy, but the shape of the rocks, the fractures, fissures, and crevices looked like the wrinkled face of an elderly native man. In fact, I thought it looked a lot like my grandfather, who'd lived to be 90 years old. He died when I was young, maybe eight or nine. He'd spent most of his later years in a small shack without running water or electricity. And now that shack was demolished, just a pile of old lumber on a deserted road. I thought about him and all the kindness he'd shown me, even when he could barely walk or move around. He'd endured so much trauma in his life, and yet he'd survived and found some peace, some acceptance. I stared at that mountain, that rock that looked like my Tunkasila, for a long time. Then it was time to go home. And welcome back. You are listening to I-94. As always, my name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I'm joined by Jeremy Kitchen. Howdy. And, of course, Mr. Michael Sack. Hello. And we are privileged today to have the author, David Heska Wandley wyden He's got a new book out called Winter Counts, a work of fiction that's been released on Echo. And, in fact, coming out of the break, you heard a selection from that book. And we've been talking with David over the uh, past hour or so about his experiences uh, as an indigenous American in the Lakota tribe uh, and how he is using this new book book try to try to really educate people who might not know anything about this about the uh frankly strange uh system of federal control on american indian justice um we started off you know talking about that and the the reading we we just heard is when actually uh nathan is enmeshed in the federal court system and you uh, make the point that uh, in the book very explicitly that uh american indians tend to get the short end of the stick uh, when it comes to the federal court system. Can you talk a little bit about why that is and why is it so dangerous, in a sense, for uh, indigenous peoples to be put into this court system? That's something that you know is, is really kind of running right underneath it. You don't come out and explicitly say it, but I, I very much got that strong sense. Well, and Virgil has some deep reservations about Nathan going into that system as an informant. Right. Yes. Right, right. Yeah, I'd be delighted to talk about that. So, so the the federal uh, uh, justice system is 
very disadvantageous for Native Americans. Um, I was uh, fortunate enough to, to get a fellowship from Pan America to study mass incarceration of American Indians. And so I know a little bit about this. So, so unfortunately, the system both under and over prosecutes American Indians. And so here's, here's how that works. We've already talked about the Major Crimes Act. So we know that about a third to half of all felony crimes are simply not prosecuted by the feds. They just let the offenders go free. And that's obviously outrageous. And if that happened in a city anywhere, there'd be an outcry. But the other end of the coin, the other side of the coin, is the over-prosecution in some offenses. Now, what this means is in the federal justice system. So when natives are prosecuted for felony crimes, they don't enter the state justice system. They enter the federal. Now, this is disadvantageous as well because, there, for the most part, there is no parole in the federal system the way there is in the state system. So I'm an attorney as well, although I don't actually practice anymore. Um, and so, um, so there's no parole in the federal system. And you have something called the federal sentencing guidelines, which takes away the discretion of judges in, in most cases to kind of show some equity and some lean, you know, lenience. Um, so let's say you've got a bar fight that if you're off the res out in Nebraska somewhere, you get caught in a bar fight maybe you do six months in, in the county jail, okay, or even the state prison, if you will. That same offense, if it occurs on the res and they actually prosecute it, okay, that will get you five years in a federal prison with no parole. So this is, again, really problematic because we're just not getting equal justice in the criminal justice system. So, you know, a small side note, and it just occurred to me, there was a Supreme Court case recently about the state of Oklahoma that said that a large portion of that state actually was now under uh, tribal jurisdiction. Can you can you talk a little bit about what that means? I, I know it's a really strange um, uh, tangent, but it, since we're talking about this, it occurred to me, I know that's a major story, obviously. So I wonder if you could yeah. you know, talk about that a little bit. I'd be happy to. And again, this is the subject of my uh, uh, July 19th op-ed in the New York Times, which I think is available still up on their site somewhere. So the McGirt decision is really a monumental one for American Indians and a big surprise. All of us who study Native law, we had no idea that the court was going to rule in favor of Natives. But the new justice there, Gorsuch, actually crossed over. He's a conservative and he voted with the Natives. I can tell you in my work as a scholar, 90% of the time, American Indians lose in cases at the Supreme Court. So this took all of us by surprise. And in the McGirt decision, which, which I am firmly in support of, I just want to make this clear, um, the, the, uh, uh, the court said that the reservations in Oklahoma had never been disestablished. So the state just kind of was going on. It's like, oh, there are no reservations in Oklahoma. Okay. And, and so uh, they've just been going about their merry way. But natives have said all along, well, wait a minute, we, we, we never disbanded this reservation. And the court said, look, Congress can get rid of a reservation, but it must do so through an explicit statement. It must, must actually say we are hereby disbanding and eliminating this reservation. They never did so. And so all of a sudden, about a third of the state of Oklahoma is a reservation again. Now, natives would say, well, it always was a reservation. There's just a, an acknowledgement of this fact. Now, how this impacts criminal justice is all of a sudden, almost overnight, the Major Crimes Act, which we've been talking about, has been extended to apply to American Indians, of which there are a ton in Oklahoma, 
in, in half of the state of Oklahoma. So the Major Crimes Act shot into effect almost instantaneously. So it is a very interesting decision, and it is playing out as we speak. The state and the nations in Oklahoma are trying to come to agreements. They've been fighting. So there's there's just a lot going on there, and I'll shut up here. No, that, that's great stuff. Well, we I mean, want to hear you. We, we yeah, hear each we, other all people, the time. People, yeah, people talk. <laughs> we they can hear my voice every day on this radio station. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the book, and it just uh, occurred to me there, there are a couple ways to, to look at the title. One, winter counts, like winter matters, but also as a uh, noun. What Can you tell our listeners what a winter count is? I'd be delighted. So winter counts was the traditional calendar system of the Lakota people. In, in you know, olden days, we, we didn't use calendars and numerals. The way that the Lakota people marked the years was by using little pictographs, little pictures carved on maybe a buffalo hide or something. And, and so there would be like a little pictograph of the most important event of the year. I mean, this year, I think all of us, oh, which is terrible year, 2020, be the year of the pandemic, you know. Um, and so winter counts, again, win- a winter count is the, the way that we marked time. So in my book, I have a flashback where Virgil and his sister Sybil um, remember making little winter counts as children. So I used the title of the book both to refer to a Lakota tradition as well as obviously the current meaning that winter counts in that it is a very tough season for most people. One of the people we haven't talked about in the book yet, and I, I wanted to get to her, was Marie, because uh, she is a, a key portion. She's the uh, love interest, so to speak, of Virgil, both past and, and present. But she's also connected to somebody else who is a major figure in the book as well. And again, I don't want to give any spoilers, but can we talk a little bit about Marie's character? One of the things that she has always wanted to do is become a doctor. Um, and you note in the book that she keeps getting rejected from school. She's rejected from the University of South Dakota, which I did not realize was a highly selective school, to be honest with you. And she points out that... Um, one of the reasons she feels she she is is because she attended a native tribal college and that the uh, state colleges look down on that system of education. Can you talk a little bit about what the tribal colleges do, for example? But also, uh, this seems to be just another example of prejudice against indigenous peoples. Sure, sure, sure. So so a, a lot of folks may not know this, but there is a, a very large and vibrant system of what we call tribal colleges in most reservations across the US. For a variety of reasons, a lot of native kids do not want to leave home and go halfway across the country. You know, they may not, I mean, college is expensive. And let me just dispel a myth right now. We don't get free tuition. We don't get a monthly check from the government. Okay, I mean, a handful of tribes have casinos that make some money. Most do not. I get asked this question all the time. They're like, you get all that casino money, right? No, no, I wish I did. I've never gotten a dime. We have a very small casino on my reservation. The closest, you know, urban area to us is Valentine, Nebraska, population 2000. So so we don't get much. We don't get any money from the casino. We don't get payments from the government. There are two colleges in the nation that give free tuition, Fort Lewis College here in Colorado, uh, uh, gives free tuition, and one of the University of Minnesota branch campuses gives free tuition. So college is expensive. A lot of natives on reservations can't afford it. They don't want to leave their family. Community is important. So they attend the tribal colleges, which are right on the reservation. But surprise, surprise, these tribal colleges are deeply underfunded, and the instructors there are deeply underpaid. 
And so they, you know, often don't get an education that is equivalent of, you know, Northwestern or whatever. And so, or, you know, in Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, I taught for two years at Illinois State in uh, Normal and uh, loved it. And so, um, you know, so, so yeah, there is sort of some discrimination, I'd, I'd say. And I, I did in the book kind of put Marie's character in there. She wants to be a Western doctor, but she wants to incorporate traditional indigenous concepts of healing and wellness. And so she's struggling as well. So I don't think it's giving a lot of way here. This is a crime novel, but it's a novel about identity. And in the book, every one of the main characters is struggling with their own identity. And I, and I think this is a universal concept that, you know, we all kind of struggle with our identity. Do we, do we fit in here? Do we fit in, in our job, in our community, our school? So, you know, I don't think you have to be native to really identify with each of these characters and how they're struggling to see if they're going to fit in. Oh, it reminded me a ton of uh, modern Jewish identity. A lot of people, like, yeah. having lost the language their grandparents or great-grandparents spoken and also being conflicted about, you know, some of the stereotypes about their own people. Yeah, the Israeli question, of course. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You can probably tell that Mike and I are members of that tribe, so. Right on. Uh Moving forward, though, let's talk a little more in depth about the, the book, because, I mean, I think it's pretty interesting. You actually uh, take Virgil off the reservation, so to speak, and you send him into the big city. I assume that was uh, a decision you made because, of course, you're based in Denver, and you, that's a city you know very well. Um, am I correct in that? Absolutely. Denver is my hometown. So I was raised here in the roughest neighborhood in all of Denver um, in a tiny little house, about 600 square feet, you know, um, and and so I did. And, and Denver is considered on on most of the reservations uh, in South Dakota. You either go to Rapid City, South Dakota, or you go to Denver. Those are considered like the, the big cities. And so I did want to write about Denver, but I also thought there was a dramatic uh, logic. The, the, the storyline demanded that they go to Denver. Uh, but I can't deny that I was able to bring in a lot of fun Denver stuff. And I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah. No, and I think it's interesting because the 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 most the, the I think the passages of the book that were most affecting to me uh, personally just because it was something I didn't know a lot about and and I enjoyed that were the passages where he is uh, on the reservation and in the Black Hills territory uh, talking about the landscape talking about uh, the history of it um, you know that that I was I was impressed in the sense that you kind of made that uh, landscape almost a character in the book itself you know uh, when I think of guys like uh, a Chandler, for example, you know, Los Angeles is a character setting, in his book. Yeah, sure. You know, the, the set, and, and James Elroy, you've already mentioned, you know, the, the city itself becomes, you know, a, a major player. Um, you know, it was interesting, and I think a lot of readers who might come to this book are going to be pretty surprised by kind of how bleak this area is. Uh, I don't think you you portray it as some kind of, you know, wasteland. I don't want people to get that idea. But it did strike me as a particularly unforgiving place, um, largely, as you point out, due to American federal policy decisions, you know. Uh, the, you, you talk very frankly about uh, the poverty, alcoholism, uh, and, and the troubles, which are also backed up by, as you mentioned, a pretty close-knit uh, community and a sense of family there which serves to kind of take some of the hard edges off. Can you talk a little bit about that that setting and and why, you know, it was so important in your book? Yeah, I'd be delighted to talk about it. So, 
you know, look, most folks, I get it, have not been to American Indian reservations and, and they, they just they don't understand. Now, again, I don't want to generalize because there are lots of different reservations out there. I'm only can speak. I'm only speaking about my own reservation, the Rosebud Indian Reservation in South Dakota. It is a fairly rough place. Um, our unemployment rate is 85 percent. Eighty five. Yeah. Yeah. And so there just aren't jobs there. Um, another part of it is there aren't a lot of businesses. We we had four restaurants in there, but one of them that I write about in the book, PJ's Pizza, just shut down. Um, it truly is the worst pizza, not just maybe in, <laughs> in South Dakota, but it possibly, I've had it there, it, it may be the worst pizza on the planet. <laughs> that's that's pretty. That's a pretty stinging Yelp uh, review. Yeah. <laughs> but, 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 but that was one of four restaurants on the entire reservation, and it just shut down. Um, so we don't even have that anymore, this horrid pizza. Um and so now, now I get asked this a lot by my students. They're like, Dave, why are there not more businesses on the reservation? Well, there are, it's a complicated question, but here's one reason why. And this is not actually in the book. Um, so I own uh, four pieces of land on the reservation that I have inherited. Now, I'm using those scare quotes or whatever. I own them. Your listeners can't see it because my land is actually held in trust by the federal government. It is leased out to three white ranchers. There was a law passed in the 1800s called the Dawes Act, also known as the General Allotment Act, which I don't want to get into too much detail here, but it essentially divided up reservations into checkerboards, gave little parcels to natives just to hold, not to actually own, and then it sold the rest of those little checkerboard pieces to non-natives who were able to come on the res. So people think that it's all Indians on a lot of reservations. Not true. We have a ton of non-natives. And you drive through my reservation and you see these amazing houses that are owned by the ranchers who have like these giant, you know, ranching and farm farming operations. But here's the thing. I don't own my land. I don't choose to I don't have the decision making authority to decide whom to rent it out to, who to whom to lease it out to. The federal government decides that I get a check twice a year from the federal government for my lease proceedings. My last check was a buck 27. Okay. So yeah, I know. Right. And in a few years I can go to McDonald's and have a, you know, a happy meal, you know? So, um, um, so here's now here's, I'm actually have a point that I'm getting to here. We can't use our property as collateral. Okay. We don't really own it. So I can't go to the small business administration uh, yeah. and put up my property and say, Hey, I've got four parcels on the Rosebud Reservation that I'd be happy to let you use as collateral. We can't do that. We don't own our property. This is outrageous as well. So this is just one piece of a, a, a larger puzzle that contributes to the lack of economic success on a lot of native reservations. You know, we're running out of time here. Today we've been speaking, by the way, with uh, Dave Heska, Wombly Wyden. He's got a new book out called Winter Counts. It's from Echo Press. Uh, Dave, first of all, thanks for spending so much time with Thank us. Thank you, We Dave. really, really appreciate it. Uh, listeners know that we always give the author the last word as well, so uh, we'll be playing out a final selection from Dave's book. But Dave, can you, real quickly, we only have a couple seconds here, tell us a little bit about what's next. So this book has come out. It's gotten a lot of press. Congratulations on that, by the way. Lots of great press. Uh, lots of great yeah. press. Uh, you know, I noticed good Goodreads actually uh, featured it this morning, uh, so congratulations on that. Literary if hub too. Literary yeah. hub, yeah. So I mean, this is good stuff for a, for a debut author. I mean, you know, uh, take take the bow while you've got it. You know what I mean? Tell us what's what's in the future for you as well. Well, thank you. I should note as well, it's a main selection this month from the Book of the Month Club. 
It's also voted as one of the 20 best books of Indie Next. Uh, independent bookstores have voted on it. And so it was an Amazon and Apple best book of August. So I'm just absolutely thrilled. There is a sequel coming out. It's tentatively entitled Wounded Horse. It's coming out from Echo. I'm writing it right now. Great. That's great awesome. news. Let us know when that comes out. And folks, once again, we have been speaking with the author, uh, David Hesko, Wandley Wyden. Winter Counts, it's out now from Echo. You're going to hear a selection as we go. Dave, thanks so much for spending time thanks with a lot, us. Dave. We Have really, really day. appreciate thanks. it. That was great. My pleasure. It was great. Thank you so much, guys. Opening my eyes in the early twilight, I looked around and tried to determine how long I'd been asleep. A few hours. Then I remembered. Do you weepy? If I was going to go through this, it was time to grow. I drove out to the intersection, to the one that led to the Uwippy house, but waited for a second. I could just drive away and let Jerome and the others figure out I wasn't coming. I didn't owe them anything. I could continue the search for Nathan by myself, alone, separated from the res and all its people, problems, complications. But Jerome had told me that about 40 people were coming to the ceremony, most of whom I didn't know, just people who'd heard about Nathan's disappearance and wanted to help. The community. I turned towards the house, the car seemingly driving itself over the bumps and jolts of the unpaved road. A few dozen cars were parked out front, but for once I didn't see any dogs or kids running around. It was strangely silent and still. I opened the door and walked in. Someone had plugged in a few table lamps, but that was the only light. The windows had been covered with heavy paper and duct tape, and even the gaps between doors and frames had been sealed. Hundreds of colorful tobacco ties had been placed around the room and on the makeshift altar set up at the far end. Prayer flags, sweet grass braids, a pitcher of water, and some food were placed around the altar. Two drummers and two singers sat off to the side, and dozens of others were sitting on the floor against the wall looking at me silently. Some were smiling, but most looked serious. Marie was there, sitting right next to the altar, the place of honor with a small smile on her face. Tommy was off to the side next to Velma. He raised his hand and grinned at me. Marie indicated I should sit next to her on a knockoff Pendleton blanket she'd laid on the floor. I sat down, the comforting smell of sweetgrass thick in the air. About 15 minutes later, Jerome's grandson, Rocky, and another guy I didn't know walked in, followed by Jerome himself. He slipped a leather bag off his shoulder, rested it against the altar, and carefully removed a few objects. He passed each one through the sweetgrass smoke before setting them on the altar. I saw eagle bone whistles, feathers, two large rattles, a porcupine quill medicine wheel, a Tupperware box full of soil and rocks. When he nodded, the drummers started pounding and the other two started singing in Lakota. The drums were so loud they caused my teeth to vibrate as I followed the keening melodies of the song, the words rising and falling along with the rhythms. After the music ended, Jerome picked up the pipe I'd given him earlier, now fully assembled, waved it in each of the four directions and put it, too, on the altar. Then he began speaking in Lakota. I couldn't understand most of what he was saying, but I understood that this was a prayer inviting the spirits to enter. Then he switched to English. I have seven children and four grandchildren. They've brought me the most joy in my life, even when they cause me grief, a lot of grief. To the Lakota, our children are sacred, Wakan. It's our job to keep them safe and teach them our ways, but bad things can happen. Kids get sick, they wander away, get lost. That is the hard time when we have to reach out to the community and to the spirits. He paused and the people said, how? I remember when my son, when he was only two or three then, became sick with some illness. The doctors couldn't figure out what it was. He was in bad shape, couldn't get out of bed, wouldn't eat or drink anything. Coughing, sweating, moaning. I went up on the mountain and prayed for him nonstop. I asked the Creator to help my child. And the people prayed too. Family, friends, neighbors. 
The spirits heard me. They told me I needed to believe in the pipe. Believe in the pipe, and if I did, my son would recover, and he did get better. How? Tonight we pray for the return of Nathan Wounded Horse. Something bad has come into our community, and we ask the spirits to remove this evil and return the child to Virgil Wounded Horse and send the rattlesnakes away. These rattlesnakes into our land and tempt our children with lies. We ask the spirits to help Virgil and also to heal our people, especially our young ones, and give them strength to resist this wickedness. Thank you, Tonkasila. Turning to his helpers, Jerome said, Juana. They went over unto him and tied his hands behind his back with a leather cord. Then a large star quilt was draped over him and they bound him with rope several more times from neck to ankles. In each knock, Rocky placed a small piece of sage. When Jerome was tied up completely, the helpers laid him down in front of the altar. The table lamps were turned off and we were shrouded in total darkness. I-94 is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured David Heskel Wombly Wyden, author of Winter Counts, out now from Echo. This episode originally aired on September 3, 2020. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.